Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new episode of The Cusp Show, the Columbia University Sports Podcast, where we talk about the business of sports with industry executives and investors and athletes and students and all kinds of interesting personalities. And we do that every week with Joe Favorito. Hello, Tom. Good to be back again, Joe. I just noticed we're in Studio D. That's what we're going to call it because there's a D on the door. This is the one with the heels clacking against the floor? Yes. Okay, so we'll look forward to that. Mm -hmm. So uh, end of the semester, you ready for it? Of 2017. Of 2017, fall 2017. We're into uh, final presentations. Yeah, we we too in our class. Thank the Lord. Um, Hard to believe. But um, anyway, we have a topic today we're going to cover that should be pretty interesting because we haven't spent much time on this, and that is the topic of... Uh, women's sports and collective bargaining and labor in pro sports. And we've got an expert to help us talk that through. Our guest today is Pam Wheeler, who's the former head of the WNBA Players Association and most recently, recently appointed faculty member and colleague of ours in the Columbia program. So welcome, Pam. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. And the first Dartmouth grad we've had. <laughs> yes, another so, Ivy League grad. Yeah. Um, Check it off so, the list. Really happy to have you joining us both for the podcast and on the faculty. Uh, I know you've got your first class uh, coming up in about seven or eight weeks, so we'll talk about that in a little while. But why don't we start first uh, with a little introduction. Let's get to know you a little bit. Can you tell us about your story, how you got into the business? Um, Thank you. First, let me say thank you for having me here today. I really appreciate it. And um, I guess when I started in the business, it was many, many years ago, and it was way before there were any courses on sports management or anything like that. So if you wanted to sort of go into sports, you were sort of on your own. Um, And so when I went to law school, I went into the career office and told them that I wanted to go into sports, and they said, let us know how it goes, and (laughs) hopefully we can, um, you know, help out the next student or a group of students because at that point when I went to law school there were really only two career paths you either went into public interest or you went into corporate law right right and so I just got on the phone and at that point we actually sent letters to people and called people and I called and wrote every sports related industry that I could get my hands on and at that time, I don't know if you guys remember, there was that thick book, How to Get Into Sports or something like that. I wonder who wrote that one. Yeah. yeah how? John Spolster. Oh, that, that John Spolster. Yes. Okay, his name was came that a few Rick, weeks ago. Was he that or Rick Horror? One yeah. of the two had to write the exactly. book. Exactly. So, so. And um, I just went through that book mm-hmm. and started writing and calling people. And um, I actually wrote to the San Francisco Giants, and they had just gotten their new ownership. And um, that was Peter McGowan, or was yes, that Peter McGowan? Okay. Wow. Peter McGowan, yeah, and Larry Bear, and Larry Bear, yeah, mm-hmm. and wow. um, Jack Bear, who was at that point, I guess, the director of legal affairs, uh, who's now the general counsel there. Who, he and I have remained uh, quite close friends. And um, I just called and wrote to them and said I was. I always said that I was going to be in that city in the next two weeks. Could they meet with me? It's a good move. And um, <laughs> so I you didn't send any letters to like Greenland or no. Any, only I, I stayed united. Yeah. I stayed yeah. um, in the contiguous forty uh, states, but uh, forty-eight states. And um, I actually wrote to them and said I was going to be in San Francisco area. That's a great idea, you know. It is. And, yeah, or I'm going to be in the neighborhood. Yeah. As they say. I'm going to be in the neighborhood, right. and it just so happened <laughs> that in between undergrad and law school. Another crazy story I'll tell you guys about another time. Um, I worked at Chase Manhattan Bank. I went through one of those executive training programs, mm-hmm. and um, I was assigned global custody accounts, which include pension plans. 
And it just so happened that the new human resources director that the Giants hired, the only thing she didn't know about were pension plans. Wow. And so um, when they saw my resume, they said, this is great. Would you like to come in? I said, sure. So my first um, entree into sports was a internship with the San Francisco Giants. And then the following summer. So you got up and just moved across the country. I just went and stayed all summer in wow. um, San Francisco, which is great, which is one of my favorite cities yeah. in the world. Mm -hmm. And um, I stayed there for one summer. And the following summer, I worked at the Oakland A's internship. Across the bay. Across the bay. <laughs> uh, felt right at home. Right. And um, right after law school, I worked for Bob Wolf Associates. Oh, okay. So I went straight into sports agency. Now, where was it? That was in Boston? That was in Boston. Okay. That was wow. in Boston. That's, a, that's amazing how you got in. It's good, good for you, showing that drive and that kind of persistence that yep. we keep talking about. Um, by the way, was, this, was your interest in getting into sports driven by your experience as an athlete or as a fan? Like, what was the motivation? My father tells this story, and I, I, you know, we're still questioning whether it's true or not, but um, he tells everyone that I told him when I was six years old that I was going to be a sports attorney. Wow. And I'm not quite sure where I got that from. Uh, my family are you know, big sports fans, so I'm sure it probably had something to do with that. And I guess watching Perry Mason, so I guess I crossed the two or something. <laughs> that's great. Uh, so I, I kind of knew that I always wanted to do that, and that's the field I wanted to go into. Okay, so then how did uh, tell us about Bob Wolf and... The, the experience there and then moving moving beyond. And you must have been at Bob Wolf at kind of a golden time for the agency, too. Actually, right? it was after he, he, after had, he had passed, passed away. He had, wow. After he had passed wow. away. Um, so they were just getting out of basketball. And at that point, they were getting into baseball and hockey. Um, so Bobby Orr came on. And then about a year after I got there, Arnold, Communi Arnold Communications purchased the firm. Oh, so okay. that was sort of the era of the... IMGs, the Arnold Communications, the we'll, we can be everything to the athletes, one-stop shopping. Mm -hmm. So that's how I sort of got a little bit of a marketing background because I was able to learn a lot in terms of ad advertising and that sort of thing. Who were some of your clients when you first started? Um, Florence Griffith Joyner, uh, Movon was one of my clients, and um, Doug Flutie was a mm -hmm. uh, uh, client of the firm. Doug Flutie was one of the signature clients when Bob Wolf was alive. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So and then Flutie Flakes. Right. And so. um, in terms of baseball, Tom Glavin was a client of the firm. Um, and then once Bobby Orr came on, then they got a lot more hockey, mm -hmm. <laughs> hockey folks coming on. And so what do you, what do you learn that, in that particular job? Because obviously you're dealing with some of the biggest athletes in the world. You started really understanding business probably more so than when you were at the, the baseball teams. Exactly. So what did you get out of that? What I liked a lot about it was that I had I had been on a legal track um, going to law school, and then I had been on a financial track uh, working at Chase for a few years in between undergrad and law school. And once Arnold Communications purchased the firm, I, like I said before, I was got into marketing a lot more. And mm -hmm. so I was able to really grasp those concepts and be introduced to something that I probably would never have been introduced to before. Okay. And so what was after Bob Wolf? After Bob Wolf, I went to the CBA, which was the Continental Basketball Association. So that predated the NBDL. So did Isaiah own it at that point or before? Isaiah, I, I'm beginning to think it's me because um, <laughs> uh, every time I, I leave someplace, something happens. But um, Isaiah was coming in as I was leaving. 
It was right before he purchased it. And okay. for those who don't know, the CBA was legendary for years and years and years. And Isaiah Thomas purchased the league as a whole. And everyone thought it was going to really take off. And it didn't end up working out that way. Right. 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 So. Exactly. Exactly. And that was prior to that. Again, it predates the NBDL. Mm-hmm. So the CBA was the official developmental league of the NBA okay. at that time. So it did have that designation. Yes. Okay. I didn't realize that. Right. Okay. So after that. After that is where I, um, the WNBA Players Association came in. The players unionized in 1998, which was a really interesting time because that was during the NBA lockout. Mm -hmm. And the WNBA players selected the NBA Players Association as their union. And so at that, obviously, the NBA Players Association was fully staffed. They were looking for someone to run the WNBPA. And that's where I came in. So that was Billy Hunter? That was Billy Hunter, yes. So Billy Billy Hunter Hunter was the head of the NBA Players Association. Right. And the WNBA commissioner at that point was Val. Val Val was Val Ackerman, who's been on our faculty. Right. Val and I go way back. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So so what was that like? I mean, obviously, the dynamic was probably a little bit different than what Billy Hunter was dealing with with the owners. Um, At that point, was it mostly... NBA teams, it was mostly NBA teams that owned WNBA franchises. Exactly. Right? So what were the challenges and then what were the opportunities to start as, you know, running the, the Players Association for the WNBA? I would think, I think some of the opportunities were um, that there was a great infrastructure in place. You know, the WNBA started, um, as, as, you, as you mentioned, being a, a collaboration with NBA teams. And so it was great. I mean, I think everyone remembers the first tagline, we got next. Mm-hmm. That was, even the casual person walking on the street remembers. Mm-hmm. You didn't have to be a tremendous basketball fan to know we got next. And so I think that was great. That was a great opportunity uh, because there were so many people that became invested right. in the WNBA. Um, some of the challenges were coming in during you know, labor unrest in basketball in general. That was, you know, that wasn't the optimal time to come in. However, um, we were able to get through it. Um, the league evolved quite a bit from there. Um, I think some, I think one of the best decisions ever was even though we recognized that there were tremendous advantages to NBA franchises owning WNBA franchises, we also realized that in some instances it just didn't make sense. Right. <laughs> just, just you know, it didn't really make sense to maybe have. Uh, women's basketball team in Salt Lake City, Utah. It right. you know, mm-hmm. wasn't the most profitable, uh, wasn't the best nexus there. So I think that was once the, the league evolved and we were able to, the league was able to look at different places where women's basketball makes sense. I mean, you know, Connecticut is probably, um, you know, the prototype for mm-hmm. the, you know, there's already um, a tremendous fan base from UConn and, you know, the Sun just do a really good job. Mm-hmm. You know, there. In, in one of the most busiest buildings in the world, in Mohegan Sun <laughs> yeah. Arena. Well, so, yeah, that really is. So, so <clears throat> when, when you got past the labor unrest, what were some of the interesting um, things that were happening, some of the challenges, some of the initiatives that you were really concentrating on at that point? Um, initially, we were... Again, trying to get the organization up and running. So I think that was the the most important thing. Um, It was also an interesting dynamic because there were a lot of players who were towards the end of their careers. And they really just wanted an opportunity to play in the United States. They had spent so much time playing overseas. Mm -hmm. And so it was a great one, a great way for them 
to actually showcase their talents in front of their parents and friends and that sort of thing. So that was great in terms of giving them that opportunity. And also um, just sort of establishing some basic parameters. One of the, you know, when we looked at, when we looked back at where the WNBA players started, um, when I came in, there were no year round health benefits. There were no wow. minimum salary um, contracts. Um, there were no group marketing rights. There was no retirement plan. There was no free agency. So we were really trying to increase the quality of life for WNBA players at that time. And over the course of four collective bargaining agreements, I think we created a, a really good system so that when the WNBA becomes very successful, which I think it will, I think one of these days it's going to be wildly successful. I'd like to think that we created a system that allows the players to benefit from that success. So, so it sounds like was the NBA or the WNBA like waiting for someone to ask and say, oh, by the way, do you want health benefits or do you want these things? Or was it a two-way street and you actually had to go in and say, by the way, I don't know if you guys realize, but there is no marketing plan you know, to go. How did that work out and was it a surprise to you? Was there pushback for any of those things at that point? Oh, sure. I mean, there's a natural dance right. that um, collective bargaining you know, that you do when you're in collective bargaining. However, um, I think there were some things that the league quite naturally knew. Um, mm -hmm. You know, minimum salaries. I, th I think that was something that was pretty obvious to everyone. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, there were also things that we were dealing with the same people. The same people who were negotiating the NBA deal were pretty much the same people that were negotiating the WNBA deal. And um, But we were dealing with quite different issues. I mean, this is the first time in collective bargaining you ever talked about maternity benefits. Hmm. And um, everyone's sort of sitting there going, hmm, never really thought about yeah. that. Thanks <laughs> so, for bringing it up. Thanks for bringing it up. And, um, you know, and how do you deal yeah. with a situation where you have players who play a lot of basketball overseas? Mm -hmm. How do you structure those contracts? How do you structure health benefits for those people? So there were some, there were some, Similarities, but definitely some areas where there were new issues. Who were some of the owners that were supportive of the WNBA and what you were trying to do at that time, as opposed to asking who the ones who weren't? Or we could probably right. guess, but who were some of the, the real champions of the WNBA? Now, I think the original owners, the ones who originally had teams were pretty, I think they were pretty, um, I think the New York Liberty have always, you know, I'm saddened to hear that, you know, there may be a sale there. Um, but... You know, I think the original team, so it was New York, L.A., mm -hmm. um, Miami, that was during expansion. Um, I think they were very excited about having a team. Unfortunately, it didn't work out. Mm -hmm. um, but they were very excited, the ownership there, in terms of getting a team. You know, Miami's tough. Miami's mm -hmm. a tough market. Miami in the summer is even tougher. Um, and so I think that was one of the one of the bigger disappointments, and especially knowing how committed they were because I visited every team. And to tell you the truth, Miami was one of the few teams where if you walked into the locker room or you walked into the building, you had no di you knew no difference between what was WNBA and what was um, NBA. So Tom, do you know the name of the Miami franchise? No, I have no idea. I do. I, I, can never, I, I can never play this trivia game with you when it comes to basketball history. So. It's sunny. I'm giving you it's the soul, it's right? the soul. And there was oh, a, okay. There was a very funny story written in Sports Illustrated about, isn't it great 
that they put a team in Miami and named it after some old Jewish guy named Saul. So they didn't know it was a different But anyway. Um, I have a question, Pam. So you had a formidable adversary uh, in David Stern uh, back, back then, considered, I guess, one of the most successful commissioners in history and known to be a great negotiator. What principles of negotiation did you learn from dealing with him? David's interesting. But I will say, I, and Columbia I'm actually, grad. Columbia, Columbia grad, grad, David. No, so, with this picture hanging in the, uh, the library. I will, and I've actually said this to several people, um, even though it was quite adversarial, and we've definitely had our, um, <laughs> we've definitely had our moments. But um, one of the things that I did learn from him in terms of leadership, leadership style, is that, um, and one of the things that I admired about what he did was, I think that he, always surrounded himself with the most, with the smartest people he could find. Um, and I think that's admirable. Um, and that's one thing that I've actually always tried to do myself is I don't think of myself as being the smartest person in the room. Ultimately, I, I think may, in this room you are. <laughs> <laughs> ultimately, I may have the final say, and I'm pretty sure that's the way David looked at things. Ultimately, he has to make the final decision, but he always surrounded himself with you know, highly intelligent, more than capable, more than competent people, which I thought was, um, I mean, if you look at the roster of NBA staffers, it reads of who's who of um, intelligence. That's right? true. <laughs> and I mean, were there, were there any uh, um, especially thorny issues that you had to deal with where you could maybe tell a story uh, uh, or, or illustrate that point? Um, I think um, when we were negotiating for free agency, that was probably one of our um, most adversarial moments. Um, I think I think though if you ask a lead, they'll probably tell you they knew they, they knew they had to move into that area because when the WNBA first formed, it was formed as a single entity. Right. So the players signed with the league and then were assigned to different teams. Mm -hmm. And obviously I don't think you need to be an economics major to recognize that that doesn't help you in the market <laughs> if you're right. negotiating with one person. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and so when they act, when the league actually branched out and started to have individual owners, I think that they knew that free agency was probably the next thing that had to transpire from that or had to become a, a, um, a component of that. Um, it wasn't easy. That was probably one of the, that was one of the negotiations where we went literally down to the wire. I think the draft was being televised, and we were still at Proskauer at like three three a.m. in the morning, wow. and we still hadn't finalized the deal. And um, I think the draft we I remember the league actually sent a car for me to come from New Rochelle. I lived in New Rochelle at the time um, to get there on time to actually um, make the interview with Val. I think mm. at like 11 o'clock <laughs> so that the draft could go on. So were you kind of learning the the art of negotiation as your job evolved? Or did you get some kind of training in it uh, or something mm. like that? Because it's a complicated, at a high level, I, I don't need to tell you, it's a complicated aspect right. of business. It's very complicated. It's yeah. very complicated in sports. I'm sure, I'm, I'm sure it's very complicated elsewhere. Um, but one of the things that I learned early on in sports is that, and actually someone said this to me, um, a baseball player said to me, you know, when you make a mistake on your job, no one knows anything about yep. it. Right. <laughs> when I make a mistake on my job, it leads on ESPN. Right. So right. 
um, I think that was another area that becomes an entirely different dynamic where everyone's watching, the world is watching. Um, And so that becomes... And the athletes themselves, of course, your, of course. Your, your clients, so to speak, and especially these days where they have their own way to express their feelings. Exactly. Uh, I mean, this is a big dynamic in the NFL right now where there's a general feeling that the, the labor deal isn't as favorable for the players as it might have been. Mm-hmm. Um, and you see that playing out in certain ways in the NFL these days. So, so it's an interesting aspect. I haven't thought about the pu- public nature of it. Mm-hmm. Well, I think um, there were two things that helped me along the way. One was that the WNBA players are amazing. I mean, they are, um, I'm not sure if you're aware, but you have to have played at least four years with the exception of maybe an international player. Um, You have to have played at least, um, I'm sorry, going to college at least four years before you can enter the WNBA. Mm -hmm. So we have people that are um, highly educated. Um, Some of them are moms, they're heads of families, so... They were very engaged in the process. So that's the one good thing I've always uh, considered myself lucky with is that the constituency was very involved um, and very altruistic, I might add. I think especially in the early early years, some of the players who especially were what you would consider star players recognized that they had a little bit more power and that they could lend the power to actually um, create a benefit or a better position for the entire league as opposed to being selfish. Um, so they were, they did a really good job. So that was my, having had them um, as constituents was helped me tremendously yeah, in the learning process. And it's also a lot different dynamic than having $20 million a year guys who are 20 years old. Or, or, yeah, right, or, or who are not engaged in, or, or, you know, however much money they right. make, they're just not engaged in the right. process. Right. Um, and then also um, the benefit that I had was that um, I had the NBPA behind me, right. um, you know, with tremendous resources, with tremendous assets, with great people, you know, in terms of, you know, talk about the NBA in terms of the people that they hire, but, you know, the people that on the MVPA side, Hal Biegas was the general counsel at that time, or he served as pretty much the WNBA general counsel. Ron Klempner, who's been at the Players Association, I think, forever. Um, I think he probably owes Methuselah a quarter or something, but he's um, he's been there forever. Teresa Messer was the director of finance. And, of course, Billy um, was the executive director at that time. And so I had a great foundation already there. Mm-hmm. I didn't have, even though... I had to create the organization and we had to create a lot of things from scratch. There was a great foundation already there and there were tremendous resources that I was able to um, draw from. So before we transition into leadership and kind of what you're going to be doing at Columbia and talking a little bit about leadership, who were some of the, the players at that stage who stepped up as leaders? Did any of them surprise you? Um, and you know, have you kept in contact with some of those players and what are they doing today? Yes, yeah, some of the um, the players who actually served on the executive committee were um, Cheryl Swoops, Tina Thompson, Elisa Leslie, Dawn Staley. Um, they were awesome um, because one one aspect of this being a league and um, trying to negotiate is you're trying to do you're trying to get the best benefit for as many people as you possibly can on the union side. And the impetus sometimes on the league side is not necessarily to do that. The impetus sometimes is to keep the stars happy. And if as long as they're happy, um, they're okay with that. 
Um, but what I was most proud of, and I think that the players should be most proud of, was how much how willing they were to make sacrifices. Um, they knew that at the end of the day, they were all going to be paid. Best. They were going to be the best paid players. They were going to get the best benefits. They were going to get the best marketing deals. But they were willing to sacrifice in terms of salary because we were dealing with a hard cap at the time. They were willing to take less money knowing that that money had to be spread out amongst the entire team. So I think they, though, you know, those players really stepped up. Coquise Washington was the first president of the MBPA, and then Sonia Henning, um, who's now uh, a marketing director at um, uh, Nike. You know, they really, both of whom were lawyers. Hmm. So it was great they to They were have. lawyers coming into the WNBA? <clears throat> yes. Wow. They were both lawyers already. So. so you didn't have the wild disparity in compensation that you see in today's NBA, for example. Oh, yes. There was a, a wild disparity. There was. There was, but okay. the, those players recognized that. And okay. the players who were highly compensated recognized that they may they may have to lose a bit yeah. in payment um, in order for everyone else to, in order to have a middle class. There was really no middle class. Yeah. There was, you know. One of the things that's striking to me, you and I haven't discussed this, Joe, but when you look at the roster page of an, ES, of an NBA team on ESPN.com, which I, I'm an NBA fan, so I follow this stuff, in addition to seeing their colleges and their stats and stuff like that, they have their salaries listed right. on the right side. And it's amazing, the disparity, which is now some of which is well known in the, in the public. But I wonder about the dynamics, the team dynamics, when you've got a mixture of talent where there are 5, 10, 15x disparities in terms of compensation. It's got to wreak some psychological havoc, I assume. I've never been there, yeah. obviously, but what do you think of that? Well, I think that the players also recognize, um, you know, and it also depends on what you mean by disparity. There's, there may be some players on the team that may be veteran players who've been in the league for 15 years, and so maybe they were at one point at a very high level and now okay, they're yeah. and now they or, or they could be being compensated when they play in Europe at a very high level too which is different right. than the NBA right okay what were you going to say um, so we were going to talk a little bit about oh yeah let's oh, transition to the yep. leader go ahead yep. so leadership um, we're in a very I would say fluid time right now in terms of leadership from bottom to top or top to bottom depending on how you look at it um, the WNBA I think at least in the last few years, has really, for some reason, become more top of mind. And having taken a high school class to a WNBA game last year, and having not been to a WNBA game since I left the Knicks 10 years ago, um, I was really amazed at every aspect of the game presentation, the way the athletes handled themselves. And the students in my class, most of whom had never been to a WNBA game before, actually thought it was a better experience than Major League Baseball, everything else that we went to last summer. So how is that, have you seen kind of a change from the league standpoint in terms of being leaders, especially social leaders today? Uh, I'm sure it was there, but now it seems like there's probably more of a need now than ever before for those athletes to step up both as athletes and leaders and women, I would imagine. So how has that kind of evolved, over, especially over the last couple of years? I think that the players have always been leaders. Um, and I think that's one of the things that's always made the WNBA um, successful or because the players and because they're much more accessible. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that the players have always served as role models. I think they've always served as leaders. They've always been in the communities, always very willing to do that. I mean, they're very willing to give of themselves. They understand the need to do that. 
um, for the good of the game, for the growth of the game. Um, and so I think they've always been willing to do that. I think what's happened now is, in general, there's a greater emphasis or tolerance in some levels uh, for social responsibility mm-hmm. in general in sports. So 20 years ago, you may not have seen this. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't cachet. It wasn't, I don't know whether you want to use appropriate or not, but um, a lot of players would not have talked about their political views mm-hmm. or talked about social responsibility issues. And so I think that now that that area is open, it doesn't surprise me that WNBA players are leading that charge. It doesn't surprise me that they're the ones who are out there doing that because I think that they've always been in that sort of arena, no pun intended. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I think they've always been at the forefront. They've always been leaders. They've always been great people, great citizens, great community leaders. So that, that doesn't surprise me. So as you prepare for your first class, the leadership class, what's the exact title, by the way? It's Leadership and Personal Management. Okay. So you are now six or seven weeks away from standing in front of a bunch of students having to talk about this. And what are, what are you thinking if you can, and I know uh, we don't have enough time to go deeply into this, but what are some of the main principles and points you look to make with your new class starting in January? Um, one of my favorite movies. It's not necessarily my favorite movie, but there's a scene in this movie that to me represent, represents what leadership is. And I hope I don't go, go on here too long, but have you ever seen the movie Mobsters? Uh, it's with Christian. No. It's, it's, it tells the story. I've heard of it, but I haven't seen it. Yeah, Christian, right, Christian Slater. Slater right? And it tells the story of, or whether it's factually accurate or not. It's hard to imagine a mob movie we haven't seen. Yeah, yeah. I'm disappointing them myself. Right? Oh, no, you got to see it. It's, it's yeah. one of the great. I'm, I'm a big I've mob I've seen The Godfather movie. 77 times, but right. not monsters. Um, it tells the story of Lucky Luciano, mm-hmm. Meyer Lansky, and uh, Frank Costello, and Bugsy Siegel. And when they first start out, they're young kids. They're young kids growing up in, I think, Hell's Kitchen or somewhere Mm -hmm. here in New York. And they're all on equal footing. But for the most part, um, Lucky Luciano and Maya Lansky, of course, everyone everyone knows that Maya Lansky was was kind of the brains behind the operation. And at one point, Maya Lansky says, we need a leader. And uh, Christian Slater's in character says, no, we don't don't need a leader. We're all equals here. And as they rise up in ranks there, and one day they're in one of the restaurants and they're having one of their powwows. And um, Maya Lansky goes to a kid on the street, uh, goes to Bugsy Siegel and says, pay that kid on the street a, a dollar or whatever. Tell him to come in the back and speak to the man in charge. The man in charge is going to tell him what to do. And as the kid is walking back to the room, it dawns on him that he never told him who the leader was or who the man in charge was. And so Maya Lansky's um, experiment is the two of them are sitting there, don't, they're not supposed to say anything, and the kid's going to walk in and he's going to pick out the leader. And of course, he walks over to Lucky Luciano. And Maya Lansky says, see, I, I told you, we need a leader. Every, everyone needs a wow. leader and everyone expects there to be a leader. Mm-hmm. And there's something about you that makes you the leader. Interesting. So, yeah. yeah, on my list now. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, talk a little bit about leadership in the time the, the time we have left. What defines a leader today? Uh, and then who are some of the leaders just in general that you either look up to or you've kind of taken on or, or you've looked to as mentors for your career to this point? 
Well, I think a leader is someone who creates their own vision, but I think an even better leader is probably someone who can lead through someone else's vision, meaning that it's, it's easy to create my own vision and maybe even easy to realize my goals and my objectives, but how do I lead when I've got to lead through conflict, which is actually someone else's vision, which is actually, you know, I look at someone um, like, you know, football, NFL right now. Um, the NFL's vision is not <laughs> to deal with protests every Sunday. Their vision is to grow revenue and to grow revenue and grow revenue and to create a global product right. um, and make money and make money. Yeah. And so the fact that Roger Goodell has to now he's basically leading through someone else's vision, mm-hmm. someone else's vision for prosperity, for whatever it is that they want. Mm-hmm. So I think to me, that's the most important key in leadership is figuring out how to lead through conflict and leading through someone else's vision. And some of the people that I've always looked up to, people like Anita DeFrance, mm-hmm. um, because she was an African-American woman, obviously on the international global, uh, international Olympic scale. And she's always been someone that I've looked up to. Um, I've actually never met her. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I've actually um, admired her from afar. But people like her um, who had a lot of other obstacles to deal with, I think made it, make it easier for people like me to now, you know, lead. And I, I look at people, I was on a panel a few years ago, um, Representative Lewis put together a diversity panel, and I don't know how I ended up on the panel, but I was on the panel with Bill Russell and um, some other iconic figures, and I'm sitting there going, why am I here? But, you know, I look at people like that who had real obstacles to face, but they still managed to lead. Who on the sport, the current sports business stage do you have your eye on that you kind of admire? I'm sure you know Adam Silverwell. I know Adam. He, um, Adam's he awesome. He seems to be doing a fantastic job for the NBA, but I, I don't want to put uh, answers into your mouth. So mm-hmm. who, who do you who do you like these days? I kind of like your. You know what I do? I watch. We, we talked about how do you keep current. One of the things that I do is I watch ESPN all day. I listen to <laughs> ESPN radio all day. I read the Sports Business Daily every day. Um, even if I can't read all of the articles, I make sure I read at least the headlines, mm-hmm. um, which I'll assign to my my class. Um, but I think that those things are really important to stay current. And right now, I'm just kind of in awe of everyone because there's so many different issues yeah. that um, in sports that people are facing that are very interesting and yeah. how people deal with them. I'm yeah, watching. it is interesting to see how uh, broad, complex right kind of the, the plates are right now for commissioners compared to oh, 20 years ago when I, when I was first in the business in the 90s and it seemed like such a it seems like such a simpler time uh, even though we have you know there's labor issues that go that are cyclical and things like that media challenges but now uh, all bets are off um, partly because uh, Joe the theme that we talk about frequently is is that all constituents have a voice yep so the fans have a voice that's immediate and global. The athletes have a voice that's immediate and global. Uh, and all expressions of like and dislike can be shared. <laughs> and, <laughs> it's, yeah, yeah. and unfortunately, lots of people are yelling and not a lot of people are listening. And the value, as we've said many times. You know, yeah, I mean, I, I, an example just quickly really the other night, uh, if you watch the, uh, the, the Pittsburgh-Cincinnati game, yes. which had some just really ugly, violent activities in it, um, it was really quite alarming. I'm a football fan, and I and I'm also a Twitter aficionado. So I was on, you know, hashtag MNF, and it was it was pretty harsh what you were hearing from fans. Like enough's enough. This is crazy. The NFL is going to lose its fans, and you just got that sense that not not that that does anything in the in the immediate term, 
but it seems like there's more and more of that when there's stuff that the customers don't like, right. it can be shared and it kind of incites other customers, kind of like what happens with retail and products, actually. Mm -hmm. um, so it's an interesting dynamic. I don't know if it's gonna change. So you kind of you kind of actually answered the first of our last right. two questions about what you keep up with. I'm just curious on uh, one extension of that. Are you a podcast aficionado? No. Okay. We'll make it one. Okay. We just see Joe and I are fans and mm -hmm. we like to hear people checking them out. And that's not so much of a plug for what we do, but. Um, there's been a remarkable uh, surge of popularity with podcasting, sure. and there's a lot of really good business ones, so we'll talk about that, separately. good ones to check out. And then um, the last question yeah. is, especially going in now with the program, what advice do you give to young people at any age, or people in general looking to get involved and be successful in sports or business or whatever it is they're trying to do? I think in sports, and probably the way all businesses are going, I think you have to just be flexible and creative. Um, and, and I think what we tend to do, at least especially with this generation, is we want them to know exactly what they want to do or they want the, we want mm -hmm. them to have a plan. And I don't know if we've done them a disservice um, by doing that. Of course, you don't want to be all over the place. Um, but I think you look at me. I went to Great I example. went I went I had no idea I would go into finance when I was in undergraduate school. I took one um, science course just to fulfill my science requirements. I didn't even take math. Um, and so, you know, I ended up in finance. So I think it's, you just have to be extremely flexible and creative if you want to be in sports and be open to anything, whether it's moving, whether it's, you know, the job. Um, and so I think that, you know, lighten up a little bit because I think some mm -hmm. now, now it seems like everyone has to have a plan, you know, a five-year plan. Um, and I think right. you that's, that's good, simple advice, and it makes a lot of sense. I just want to um, uh, touch on one point you mentioned at the beginning of the conversation, the way you got into sports, which was actually taking the initiative to proactively reach out and go for it. Show up. Um, right. What is the, as, as someone who's hired a lot of people, like, what is the best way for young people to do that? Like, if someone <laughs> wanted to find you, if, like, let's say when you were in your position as head of the PA, like, what do you like to see from young people in terms of the style of outreach? Um, I just like for them to be professional, um, not to have very, very high expectations. Don't come in wanting my job. I mean, <laughs> you know, be willing to at least start at yeah. some, you know, at some level. Um, don't sell yourself short either. If you have a PhD, I don't want you to come in and, and want to refill the water bottles. But... Um, is, is it cool if someone were to have tracked down your email and, and email you directly? Yes. I mean, I'm, okay. I'm, people have done that. Okay. Uh, people have done that. You don't Either find way. that to be too pushy? It's mm -hmm. when they show up at your doorstep. That's right, when they show up at the door. But I, I think, and, and, you know, in this day and age, how can you keep these things secret? Oh, yeah, um, no, I, I think it's, I, I agree with yeah, you. Uh, you know, I'm just saying that some people say, oh, well, they, they shouldn't be so bold as mm -hmm. to actually contact me if they don't know me. Or they should send me a written note or something like that. I, I don't agree with that. If you can find someone's email address, I think it's fair game. And worst case is they don't return the email. Right. And I always think, I always tell people, though, try to find a nexus between whatever mm -hmm. it is that you're doing with that person. A, a simple cold call is not going to be effective. Mm -hmm. But, you know, if, if you saw, you know, if there's a, if you see that I'm doing this podcast this week, mm -hmm. let's say, and you email me and say, listen, I'm at LaSalle University and we're doing podcasts, would love to have you. you exactly. know, as long a really as you, good, that's a really good You know, point. make sure that yeah. there's some nexus that are, you know, even something in your background that mm -hmm. you can even talk to. I've done podcasts before or something like that. Do your that. homework. Right. Yes. So, well, that's oh. terrific, Pam. Thank you. Thank uh, you. Really fun conversation. So good luck 
as you begin your journey in, in teaching in another six weeks Thank in January. You. I think it's going to be, uh, I think Columbia is really lucky to have you. You Thank have a you. lot to add. I think it's going to be a wonderful experience for the students. So we'll have to uh, do a part two of this. Okay. Uh, Whatever happened to Pam Wheeler? <laughs> <laughs> well, no, after maybe you, in the world? after you've been in the trenches for a few months, yeah. maybe we can talk more about the, the art and science of teaching. It'd be, yep. it'd be good to go over that. Joe, thank you. Always, Tom, it's a pleasure. A lot of fun. So uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll see you next time on The Cusp Show. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Cusp Show, the Columbia University Sports Podcast. I'm Tom Richardson, and the host is Joe Fabrito. Our production assistant this week is Columbia student Reese Eisenman. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple's podcast app, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and other key platforms. You can also find it at blogtalkradio.com forward slash touch with us on Twitter at CU underscore SPS underscore sports. Also, you can find out more about our program, Columbia University Sports Management Program, by going online at sps.columbia.edu forward slash sports hyphen management. Thank you very much. We'll see you next time. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.